You're listening to The Vent Podcast, where we bring you interviews and stories from around the world of wine and spirits. From winemakers and critics to sommeliers and master distillers, we'll explore the people and businesses who are instrumental in shaping the future of today's food and drinks culture. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady. I'm joined back in studio by Billy Galanko, who is freezing cold, it looks like. Yeah, you know, it's it's winter in Los Angeles, all the frigid 60 degrees outside. But we, we are in between atmospheric rivers, so that can be our, our weather chat for the week. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, no reason to spend too much time on that when we have such a good guest today. Um, people know Madeline Puckett because of Wine Folly and all that she's done since Wine Folly, the book, through her education and, and incredible content that she creates. So we're excited to bring that interview today. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. We've been working with her to have her on. She's a very busy lady. Um, but I, I think, yeah, it's something that regardless of your level of wine education, you've, you've worked with some of her materials, whether it be the book itself or looking up tasting notes for a specific variety. But it was really nice to have her on and, and hear about how her, her views on wine have changed over the years. It was a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, she wrote her, her book, Wine Folly, or it was published, I believe, in 2015. Uh, for that, well, Madeline was a graphic designer and they started out creating uh, helpful wine graphics that really didn't exist before in an accessible way that normal people could look at a visual and understand something about winemaking process or about grape varieties. And so they create all of this incredible content around these sort of neatly designed graphics and sold posters and, and all that kind of thing. And um, she gets into a little bit of that story of how they started uh, on the episode. Yeah. Well, you forget that she was also, she was... She trained in graphic design, but she was a sommelier working, mm-hmm. and then she had the graphic background. So it wasn't like she just was an artist who was like, I want to make art for wine. She she was hands-on with wine and then wanted to explain it in a way that she wished people explained wine to her, which I think is is really helpful because not everybody, uh, you know, intakes wine information in the same way. So That's right, yeah. Her, her, the way that she describes the reception of her book, Wine Folly, was mixed in the wine community. Because definitely her approach is a little bit non-traditional to the way that she describes wine and and thinks about how wine education should be. But I think that most people's journeys into wine are quote unquote non-traditional in that people come to wine in all different all different ways. So I think her content's super accessible in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the other part, the reason why it was controversial, one, well, because it just displayed wine in a different way, but two. She was trying to, and she talks about it on there, develop systems to explain things in wine mm-hmm. that were not re- readily explained via system. She was actually creating things from the ground up that people either just learned hands-on or were like explained to in some convoluted way. So she was trying to simplify it. So anytime you're making the initial version of a, a system or a structure that's you know heavily publicized, you're going to get some, some backlash. So I yep. thought that was really cool to think about, you know, actually just developing systems. Um, that, include, that includes the wine color or the color of the wine in the glass or wine aromas and, the, and creating flavor wheels for those kinds of things. Flavor wheels had been created before, but if you go on our website and you're looking up a variety, you notice there's like five key tasting notes, maybe some secondary ones. Um, she had to narrow all those down. And, and what's really cool, and it comes out in their conversation, is while her content is really accessible and, and not simplified, but I'll say still down. Mm-hmm. Um Sure, her depth of wine knowledge is is so deep just because of all of the people she's had to work with. You know, initially beginning, she's worked with a lot of her 
her peer sommeliers, but to develop some of this other content, she's, you know, contacted people from around the world, experts left and right to develop her uh, educational courses right now. She's working with a, an MW. So it's like, she's been able to pick all these people's brains and try to distill this down. And, and it's, it's really cool to see all the thought and process that went into making these things that we view as relatively easy to access. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we definitely take it for granted now, but you know, 2024, 20, so more than almost 15 years ago when she got into navigating all of this, a lot of the online content even that we have now didn't really exist, you know, in the form that we currently have it as accessibly, like you said. Um, yep. some, I think something that stood out to both of us in the conversation was the ways that she utilizes, you know, these systems of thinking, whether it includes descriptors of flavor and aroma or this tactile characteristics of a wine, even extending out to place in the story of the vineyard. And she builds that as the building block for understanding each wine rather than, I think you said earlier, not just coming, not, not coming to a wine saying, well, this is, uh, this is a Pinot Noir and, it, you know, went through this aging process and actually saying this is DRC. Um, they're one of the most famous producers in the world. Their vineyards are this years old kind of thing, building more of a story around the wines uh, resonate with people. Yeah. Yeah. She tells, she basically makes this example in the book. You, you kind of had it backwards, but she basically says like, people, wine people will come in and just be like, oh yeah, you know, this is, this is good or not as good as, you know, you know, whatever vintage DRC and just move on. And people who are just getting into the industry won't need like those subtitles or those building blocks that are like, DRC is one of the most famous wineries in the world. Their bottles are mm -hmm. this expensive and it's made of Pinot Noir and it's this and that. And like to give you those understanding of like, once you get there, you're like, oh, I understand why they're making such a big deal or this is the benchmark reference. Um, and I think that's something interesting that she kind of makes a more a broader point. And she was mentioning that the the MW is helping her develop her courses also talked about this is really building that understanding of why something tastes a certain way um, and helping you understand it along the way helps you you know understand it and taste it better or have a better appreciation but also grasp the concepts so i was mm -hmm. thinking maybe in this intro we throw out a few things of maybe in the winemaking process or in the vineyard things that would impact the way the wine tastes in your glass maybe a couple fun facts that we can throw out that our listeners can then pull out at a maybe a dinner party or even everyday drinking yeah i think that i recognized early on that it was more beneficial to tell those kinds of stories than to say, I'm getting, you know, aromas of X, Y, or Z. People who only drink wine every month and a half, <laughs> which sometimes are the friends that you're drinking with, just aren't going to resonate with that right away when you're showing them a new wine. So one that I like to talk about, well, I'll just I do one. Maybe it's elevation mm -hmm. um, and just speaking about elevation and changes in temperature or direction of sunlight and intensity of sunlight in a given area as affecting things like acidity. And that feels like a really simple, a simple concept to understand that they can take and apply to anywhere in the world, right? Oh, I know that this region is, you know, above a thousand feet. You know, I can guess X, Y, Z about this wine. Um, something that they can take with them. I feel like that's resonated with friends in the past. Yeah, I think even even taking that one step back is just if your your alcohol is relatively low, or if your wine is relatively low alcohol, it was probably from a cooler climate, and then you mm -hmm. know if it's very high, um, it's from a warmer climate. Just understanding that, yeah, that impact of of heat and and coolness, sugar, um, yeah, 
I think that's a big one. I think two for me, and I, this is a little more advanced, but once you, everybody can taste them. I think it just explaining the processes are a little weird, but one would be uh, like the butteriness that you get in like a Chardonnay. Um, it kind of, I, I think most, most red wines go through this as well, but malolactic fermentation, it basically just, they call it fermentation, but it's a bacteria after the primary fermentation, a bacterial kind of happening that, that transforms the malic acid that's left in the wine. But, so malic is like apple, malice is apple in, in Latin. Uh, it takes that type of acid, apple acid, and turns it into lactic acid, which is in milk. And I think everybody can perceive that if you ever have a really lean, they'll call it on oak, Chardonnays, and oak is a different process, but you tend to get, I find that oak, unoaked, where they, they, they brand it as zippy, um, tends to not go through malice. So if you just compare like a really lean, crisp white wine to an oaky Napa Chardonnay, um, it's really interesting that you'll be able to taste kind of these buttery popcorn notes and know that this secondary thing happened. And that was, it was done on purpose, most likely. <laughs> Or yeah. it was let let go. I think that's interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's two examples. Yours is an example of something that people can take from the winery and understand some of the process there. And the example I gave is something that they can take from out in the vineyard and, you know, mm-hmm. having to do with the geography of a place and the, the location of a place. Um, and both of those can extrapolate out to help people understand, you know, the wine world more broadly, regardless of the wine that they pick up and taste, which I think yeah. is Madeline's sort of her underlying thesis is that education should have that effect, you know, when people are coming to a wine. Yeah. I think another one that interesting to me is if you ever get any like bread, bread notes, beer notes um, in your white wine, like it just smells kind of, kind of like a beer, like some bread. Um, that typically means the, the wine had some, some lees contact and, and lees for those who don't know, or the dead yeast and some other compound or things that are basically at the bottom of a fermenting wine vat but mainly yeast um and those things over time kind of break down and add this component but what's fun to is you can actually smell those especially pinot grigio traditionally in northern italy they'll they'll give them some extended yeast contact so if you're sitting there and and you're trying to think about maybe pinot grigio from like california or even a pinot gris from like alsace and you can smell those two next to each other it's fun to be like oh this one smells like beer probably spent some time on yeast you can start kind of thinking about these little little components that's like when you get a really toasty champagne too that's also the same cause so it's fun to think about that as well these little little things in the winery but they're they're definitely noticeable um by most everybody and you maybe just don't think about it yet yeah and those those things also tend region by region to be uh stylistic as well Mm -hmm. um for instance in champagne i would say it's definitely a stylistic component (laughs) of of champagne and elise contact in that sort of bready brioche i think usually the word is the brioche that toasted kind of crusty bread aroma so yeah all those things are really cool to learn about and actually like all three of those that we talked about just then i thinking back i was introduced to those concepts early on in my wine journey and made accelerating my learning in other parts of the wine wine world that much quicker right Mm -hmm. because i was introduced to that stuff early on those concepts early on so yeah. yeah. And they're also like, those are two, at least my side, that they don't need to be like we were talking about Matt Caner. It doesn't need to be wine that's aged 20 or 30 years before you figure it out. Some of the nuances of Burgundy Terroir, you literally can only tell after the wine's aged. These, yeah. like, for yeast contact, go get a, a Muscadet that's 15 bucks at the store that says Sir Lee, and you can get a nice Lee example, Lee's example, or a simple Pinot yeah. Grigio. Or if you want 
Mallow, go get the the wine literally called bread and butter. Or I think there's one now just called butter. Um, yeah. No, actually, all, all three of the things that we mentioned, the uh, elevation, acidity, alcohol mm. and sugar, and the Lee's contact stuff, all of that actually you're going to notice more readily when the wine is younger versus when it's older. Um, especially sure. with, especially the acid thing. Um, all right, yeah, I guess even alcohol too. But yeah, all three of those, I think you recognize when the wine is younger. I, yeah, I, I don't know if I 100% agree with, with that assertion, but you can recognize them. They're, they are evident in a younger wine too, I guess uh, you're is what stuck, I'm saying. You're stuck on the bread thing, right? The, the mallow uh, stuff? No, no, just thinking if a wine is is well balanced and then there's good acid it's you're that's really gonna allow it to develop differently over time um but eventually the acid will go away eventually if you age it for long enough sure i mean but if we're talking like a mosul riesling 30 years from now you're still gonna be zippy and you're gonna be like cool this is from a a cool wine region yeah you're now now this is i guess i'm 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 thinking like a argentinian malbec right something higher elevation okay the acidity but then 30 years on you're not going to have the same experience of that acidity yeah sure well also to your point the fruit would drop out see i'm having um what madeline kept referring to is their, is their gray monk moment now I, i've come too far and i'm like arguing with myself after that's true but it's also wrong it's also true <laughs> yeah i think that was that was also something that resonated with me as as she talked about her wine journey is like when she was younger, she, I knew everything was black and white. And as I moved on and learned more, there's always exceptions. And now I'm like looking at things from so many different points of view. And it's just, it was, it was very interesting to hear. And you, you quoted her book to her. And she's, wow, that's hilarious. She didn't even write it. I was like, that's really funny. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. I think we had actually, I think we had talked about that on podcasts before about calling a stemless wine glass good for, good for water. <laughs> that's yeah. funny. That's a, that's, a, that's great. Yeah, no, she's Malin. Yeah, her impact can't be overstated, I think. And um, in the wine world in the last in you know, this this century, I guess. I know she didn't start uh, until a little bit later on, but um, at least this decade. Yeah, can't be overstated. <laughs> this last 10 years, 10 years. Yeah, it's getting hard to understand decades because now it's uh, 20, almost 25 years from 2000, which feels like kind of weird. Anyways, here, um, our guest today is Madeline Puckett. She's a co-founder, and I think the title that she gives herself is chief designer or something like that. But she runs the show, especially from the content side, and is creating awesome educational materials and 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 more for the wine world. We're super glad to have her on. Um, she's a great guest. I'm extremely humble and willing to share with us, and hope you enjoy the interview. Hey, Malin, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is for us getting into the wine content game with the podcast maybe almost two years ago now. Um, You know, it's great to have someone who's been in the content game for so long and even so much more than that, doing education for folks. And so it's great to have you on. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, My podcast is a realm that I never got into and I always think they're super awesome. So kudos to you guys. Well, you just absolutely dominate, it seems like, the short-form and long-form video space, but especially the short-form with your tastings and, and things like that. Do you want to talk, take the listeners back to maybe before uh, most folks knew about Wine Folly before the book and, and just tell us how you jumped in? Yeah, I think it was really in 2012 that Wine Folly took off. I We, were, we had started it casually in 2009 and then again in 2010 and then officially at the end of 2011. 
So that's what the Wikipedia page says, at least. But, you know, a lot of false starts getting going. And then we were going to be an online wine club where we would go to a region, film great content because we thought YouTube was the future. And we would teach you and show you the area. Show, don't tell. And then you would get these wines and you'd get this adventure together in a single unit. I love the idea, the concept. My boyfriend at the time and I were putting it together with another friend of ours named Chad. And we were filming in my 600 square foot open one bedroom apartment with two cats. And so there's cat hair. We were always cleaning <laughs> off our black clothing and that kind of a thing right before the shoot. We're like using our tiny kitchen to try to show people how to do proper sommelier stuff on video, which was hilarious. Uh, and so that's kind of how it started. However, it wasn't the wine club that took off. It was when I decided to start as article marketing to make infographics about wine so that we could at least garner some interest because we could see that you, graphics were starting to be like really cool and shared a lot. And they, I just thought they looked awesome. And I'm a designer. So I was like, I want to make one. So I made one and it and it blew up on Facebook back when Facebook was more like TikTok and how you could actually ride a wave. They didn't throttle your waves back now like they do now. And uh, the channel on Facebook really blew up. I think we went to, from 3,000 followers to 30,000 in a few days. And so we put wow. that infographic for sale on using eBay <laughs> or something nice. like that or PayPal. <laughs> I can't remember exactly. And so I remember rolling posters. We hadn't even printed it out yet as a poster, but we found a local printer within that next week. Which one? The poster. Which one was this? It was Which, called uh, How graphic? to Choose Wine. It's oh, okay. a brown poster, and it's like a dark brown color, and it's very sardonic. Basically, whenever you're choosing wine for yourself, you end up with the best bottles in the bottom. But if you flow chart, if you're trying to buy it for other people, it, it kicks you out of the chart, or it says buy them vodka. They don't deserve good wine. It's very sardonic and it's called how to choose wine, right? So, but what we had, the biggest piece of feedback we had was like, most people were like, you know, can you please make this less sardonically and more ac accurate? Can you actually help us to choose wine is what people really wanted. They loved the chart. They loved the flow chart. They just wanted to actually know how to choose wine. And so I started making more that did that. And that's essentially how the brand took off. But we were never expecting to be a poster company. <laughs> we were going to be a wine club. So yeah. it's been 10 years and we finally started a wine club and we are essentially doing what we said we would do <laughs> back in the day. But it took a long time to get here. A book, a couple of books actually, and you know, an entire website, a huge millions and millions of words on, or well, I would say maybe 1.2 million words on that <laughs> uh, is in the resource. And yeah, that's, that's how. That's the short version. I love to um, see people who bring their passion, their outside passion into wine and kind of like meld them into a Venn diagram. Like me, I'm kind of like a history geography nerd. And that's partially why I love wine. I love that you were able to bring your design piece into that meld both of your your passions there. It's pretty cool. Well, you, that's really cool that you like history and stuff. I now like reading a lot more than I did. I hated reading back in the day. And that's all you could do to learn about wine was to read a book. And I think I have some kind of learning disability and it just is extremely difficult for me to sit down, sit still and do it. So I started making every single time I would read, I would draw to try to help myself learn. And, you know, I have a graph, I have a degree in design. So 
it was easy to draw on my computer as well. <laughs> nice. Yeah, well, you've certainly helped helped me. I, I like to read, but there's only so much that you can get friends who don't know anything about this. And I'm like trying to explain it. And they're like, you're confusing me. I'm like, here, just look at this picture. And it's like something that you've created. And it's just like, they're like, oh, I get it. And now I want to learn more. And okay. And they'll listen to me after that. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. You like, it's like you give them the basic here. See what we mean. All right. Now let me tell you this dope story. Yeah. Yeah. Did, um, was it easy for you? Because you said that you started, uh, you guys were filming these videos, but you're a designer. And like in my head, it's, oh, she probably would feel most comfortable just, you know, putting together these posters and graphics and stuff. Was it easy for you to jump into the in front of the camera content? Or was that very much a learned sort of trial and error skill for you? Oh, my gosh. It's been a I'm still learning. But well, I you're do very good background. at it now, which is why I ask. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm still I'm yeah, I'm still learning. But I did have a background in music. So I used to be a music producer and I was a vocalist. And so I've performed on in, in front of a microphone in front of people. And so I wasn't afraid to do that. I'd already worked through how to get over what stage fright is. And I turned anxiety into enthusiasm. I'm not feeling anxiety right now. I'm feeling excited about what I'm about to do. Yeah. And so that sort of tricked myself. I, later in life, I realized, I think I'm suffering from anxiety. This isn't enthusiasm that I'm always feeling. Uh, but, you know, at least it got me across the line to to perform and to do all these things. And uh, yeah, so I enjoyed I, I love, you know, I love the center of attention when it comes to doing that. Whether I should be in the center of attention is an entirely different question. <laughs> I see. It. Does the, the content a lot of people say, well, or winemakers actually say this a lot. I guess content creators do, too. But they'll say, oh, I just make wine that I like or I just make content that I would want to watch. Do you feel that way about your content or did you feel like you were, oh, I had this knowledge and I have ways to access it. But I realized that there's a whole sort of demand for a different type of content out there. That's a that's an interesting question. I did do, I, I did, I am just as simple as a winemaker in the sense that I wanted to, I wanted there to be content that I enjoyed looking at out there that appealed to me. And I felt yeah. like there wasn't anything out there. I felt like it wasn't appealing to anyone in my age bracket. And I like, we're in the late twenties era. And so I could remember what it felt like to get into wine and I could remember what it felt like to be currently into wine and, and I just felt like it was speaking to the wrong audience. We don't give a crap about that. Yeah. Like, why are you why are you starting this story from terroir and this really ornate story when we just I don't even know what you're talking about. That's kind of where that's kind of where I started, you know, and I could remember that feeling of feeling isolated and outside of wine and not included. When anyone would say something jargony or drop a winery name, not really explain what it is and where it's from and why it's important in their conversation, like casually, oh, no, DRC, you know, that means Domaine de Romani Conti, yeah. and it's yeah. in Burgundy, and it's actually the most expensive Pinot Noir you can buy. Anyway, like that one, blah, 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 blah. Like if somebody was kind enough to communicate like that instead of just be like, yeah, that DRC, blah, 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 that 2011 vintage, you know, it's cheaper than the rest, you know, whatever. I felt so isolated. So I always had these little asides in the text where I'd be like, ha, this silly, most expensive Pinot Noir in the world. Just to help people follow along. It's almost, you know, Plippy 
in Microsoft Word document, I'm dating myself to the 90s right now, <laughs> go, coming along and being like, hey, did you know what a file tree? You can organize <laughs> your files like that. Billy and I were looking at your book a little bit ago, and I was thumbing through it, and I, I saw a portion that you had. I, I think it's about glassware, and there's different glasses, and you know this shaped glass and this stemware. And at the bottom, there's a, a stemless glass. And I said, this is a stemless wine glass. It's great for water, <laughs> which I just think was really funny. I don't even think you meant it that Did way. I but that? That's yeah, it's like, yeah, This is a stemless glass. It can also be used for water. <laughs> I just thought it was perfect. <laughs> that is yeah that's the kind of that's the kind of funniness yeah. like bring us all into the scene and you're okay and you can do whatever but eh, you want to be awesome you could do that too we'll help you get there too yeah so that was yeah. always the mood like we're kind of in this together hey i found out some neat shit you want to know about wine can't check this out <laughs> so hey. yeah so it was come i was writing for myself i was writing for my people i always think of this one guy micah Micah De La Huerta, who's a buddy of mine, I played video games for years, years of computer gaming under the belt here. I used to be addicted to World of Warcraft back in the day. Nice. And so we would noodle around on our characters or whatever and hang out. And he'd be drinking a wine. We'd be talking about it while we're gaming, you know, running dungeons or whatever. And that's who I write to and talk to in the video. I always think of Micah. <laughs> nice. Have you Have you found that, like, maybe partially due to your your own content but have you found wine becoming a bit more approachable since you started i feel like there's oh been at gosh. least a transition for sure in the past five ten years maybe i have an exact story too and it, it i could it could be because people who know who i am that could be it too but i it was over a decade ago i went into this really famous napa valley winery walked in right at the end of the day and we're like hey just want to hear your story. You know you're late. You know if you have room for a tasting, we'll pay you. Or if not, that's fine too. We're from this little small outfit called Wine Folly, and they kicked us out. And I hated that winery for years and years. And then wow. recently, I went back. Just showed up. Also at the end of the day, because I missed an appointment or whatever, and I showed up, and I'm like, hey, I'm sorry, and I totally name dropped because I didn't know. Madeline Puckett of Wine Folly. If you've heard of me, I know and this they, place. They and they let were you very time. nice. They let, they let me in this time, and I'm like, is it because the wine world has changed, or is it because they know who I am? Did I work this hard for me, for my own benefit, or is it because but they were incredibly helpful? I, I, I don't think I would have been kicked out by these guys. Even if they had to kick me out, I, would, I think they would have been nicer about it than they were back in the day. Like It was like some old guy, and he's like, we don't have room for you, you know, like with the door standing in front of the door holding it, and then it was literally like that. Like that was the world that I started in, and I don't see that world. I mean, there's maybe some places in France that are kind of like that, mm -hmm. but I don't see that world, in, at least not in America anymore. Yeah, I think even the way that wineries and producers think about hospitality has probably changed in general, and probably another change when COVID happened as well. Uh, realizing how important part of the wine business, getting people on site at the estate is and so I, I bet that's probably changed the culture of things a little bit too. Um you you mentioned the pretentiousness of someone being like, oh, the twenty eleven DRC, this, that, and the third, and a, a way of describing a wine, but the approach that you've taken is pulling out um you talk about taste, uh, you know, flavor, like the senses. You do all these short form tasting videos as a way to provide education. Was that something that 
you stumbled into recognizing was super important and that's the direction you took your content or sort of how did that become the backbone of the way that you do education? It was always a core piece. Um, and the core is this, I'll tell you my secret. Start with what you, what's in your glass and what tools you have attached to your body. Whether it's your brain or your eyeballs or your ears or your nose or your mouth or your fingers or whatever it is, it's very basic human. Like, I can look at a bottle. What's on the bottle? Start with there. Then what's in my glass? What's there? And so every single question I asked had to do with that is what's in my glass? How many calories does it have? Whoa. No sommeliers were asking that question back in the day. 0.00% 0.00% sommeliers were being like, did you know a glass of Cabernet from Napa has about 130 to 140 calories per glass if you're drinking a five ounce pour? They don't know that. They didn't know that. I did the math. I remember making a mat, doing maths <laughs> and making a calculation for determining calories in wine based on alcohol percentages and RS. And I made this thing and I would walk through a bunch of examples of different wines and different calories and people cared, turns out, about what they're putting in their body, not only how it smells, but what what it does to their body. How does alcohol affect you? Actually, and how much should you be drinking if alcohol affects you that way, right? What's the what's the sweet spot? And you know, people care about those types. Of course, that's like a big question now, <laughs> but it wasn't back then. It wasn't yeah. a you know, something very commonly talked about back then. It's it's so interesting you bring that up because I was recently thinking I love a good Spätlese Mosel Riesling, but then I had never thought about. I'm I'm listening to what's called Wine Technologies. It's a whatever some book just trying to prep for potential future exams, and they were mentioning the different sugars in wine. And then I was like, wait a minute, like this much is like sucrose left over, and that's what RS is. And I was like, holy crap! Like, the wines I like the most probably have so many grams of sugar in. I spend the rest of my day looking at the grams of sugar and what I'm drinking and eating and being like, oh, I can't have that. But then I'm like, oh, I just drank this whole bottle of Spätlese because it's 9%. I'm fine alcohol wise. But I'm like, oh, just, just drinking so much sugar. Yeah. So it's like, it's interesting to think about that along with the alcohol. I'm- yeah. You think about it, a can of Coke is about 113 grams per liter of residual sugar. And a Spätlese, it can be like, what, 90 to 120 about? I think mm-hmm. that's where yeah. it rolls around the room. So it's like Coke quality. And if you think about it back in the day, you know, the one of the things we were drinking a lot of, we were drinking a lot of wine. We were drinking a lot of wine with RS. Even Barolo had 1860s because it was delicious. It was like drinking a can of Coke. <laughs> it was delicious. It had a little bitterness. Coke has bitterness. It had all the components naturally in it. You know, a little bit of RS. It was awesome. You know, so I think a lot of the original cocktails were, well, this is, I'm off piece now, but I think a lot of the original cocktails were like based on, how do I recreate wine? <laughs> like the soda fountain, like a Negro, a, what do they call it? Negro Amaro, an Amaro, an Amaro. That's essentially like a lot of sugar, a lot of bitters, a lot of creating wine, essentially a, wine, a proxy for it. And sure enough, cocktails became really popular and essentially were invented during the time in which phylloxera happened. And we lost all of our vineyards. Well, what do we do? We need to replace this delicious Coca-Cola beverage we're drinking, this red wine beverage. So it, and then now the market's changed and we're drinking all these dry wines and we think that dry wine is the standard and it wasn't. 
the standard at all. The first mm-hmm. qualified wine regions in the world were all sweet wine regions, except for maybe Chianti Classico, and that's arguable what they were trying to protect. Could have been Vinsanto they were originally trying to protect. They talk a lot about their red wines now, but I, they didn't figure out Sangiovese until the late mm, late 1800s. They were like, oh yeah, or maybe early 1900s. It was like they figured out that was the grape they were going to use for the primary blend. Whoever that guy is, Riccasoli or something like that. Anyway, nerdy stuff, fun stuff. You like history, right? That's so cool. Like we Coke back in the day. That's all wine was. It was a boozy Coke. Oh yeah, yeah. Now everything it's taken so many different forms. I've been talking on this podcast. I don't know if you've heard of Hugh Johnson's The Story of Wine, but it must be an enormous book. I have it on Audible and it's forty eight hours, and I've been listening to it for a year and a half now. Um, because wow. I listen to it in like snippets. But it's so funny. Wine like has been like a delicious like sugary beverage. It's been you know a life saving medicine. It's been you know sacramental things. It's just crazy how it's had these different things and meanings for everybody um, and evolved to like what it is today. So it's kind of funny. People think of it as one thing when it's really been and will continue to evolve and be other things for other folks. Yeah. As long as we carry along, carry it along with us, it will continue to evolve and fit whatever need we have for it, whatever that happens to be, which is, hey, maybe it'll be non-alcoholic in the future. That's what that's what I was going to get to. Is what, do, what do you think that what is that thing bridging the gap between the last generation of wine enthusiasts and wine drinkers and hopefully the emerging one now. Do you think it's those like non-alcoholic or natural like, or any of that? Or? I am so on board with the kids. They're like, be responsible. They're t- they don't want <laughs> drunk mom syndrome. It's 5 p.m. somewhere. That's not what they're excited about. They want to move away from that. And I'm like, to be fair, though, I was I was getting lit on bottles of wine with my buddies at music shows or whatever, like wherever we could do it. Pre-funk, you hang out by the car and drink the bottle of wine and then go into the show and watch because you can't have, they never served good wine in shows. But I feel like now there's this move away from getting blitzed. Like, hey, we need to be smart. We got to, the world is falling apart. (laughs) <laughs> this is a very sobering experience we're living right now. Everyone all almost died in 2020. Our grandparents passed away. Terrible things happened. Uh, I, I'm feeling very sober right now. So nope. I, I, I think our job as wine enthusiasts is to show people that wine is part of a slightly off-sober experience. And it's not... It's not something we do to get drunk. It's something we do to explore our own sense of taste and who we are and the world around us. And so that message is something that we've been pushing very strongly always since the beginning with Wine Folly. So it's almost like everyone's kind of come around. And I can't hate that, although I am afraid of the activist groups who are like the triple X vegans. I'm plant-based, so I totally get the whole plant-based thing, but I do have leather shoes. I'm not exactly like a triple x vegan at all like i can't i don't go the whole distance and i think that's what i'm afraid of is the extremism around it it's bad kill it (laughs) you know that 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 keeps me up at night (laughs) we've we've heard a lot of that this month because of the dry january stuff it seems like that crops up every year um to have that conversation it's especially salient now because of the trend of non-alcoholic in general well i don't know is it i'm not even sure it's a trend I think it's just something that people talk about being a trend, but isn't actually real because I don't know many people these, who 
These non-alcoholic proxies in kombucha are like the big, I, I'm just going to, they're the best onboarding beverages for wine drinkers ever because they're mm. not sweet. They're complex. They have tannin. They've got texture. If there was never a better onboarding beverage to wine, this is it. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. To For people to get away from sugary and to experience other uh, flavor profiles like bitter or like you said, tannic, uh, drying or sparkling even, all of that. Sparkling water. Everyone drinks sparkling water or fizzy type drinks now. And I'm like, you should try champagne. <laughs> like we don't Go common. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <here. laughs> yeah, on, on the side of, oh yeah, that was what I was trying to get to. So Having elements of wine and other beverages on this off topic, but I want to see what your thoughts on it. So there was a big hubbub this week about scientists saying you should put a little bit of salt in your tea and that helps counteract the, the, the bitterness. And they like it was generic tea. So I'm thinking they're referring to kind of like black tea. And apparently like the British people got really angry in England about it. And they some organization actually had to apologize, like a tea organization. Um, but it, but it got me thinking. Because they're like, it offsets bitterness. Well, what are the bitterness in tea? It's mostly like tannin and, and some other things. So it's, should I try sprinkling a little bit of salt in my wine? But then salt is already in your wine between potassium and other elements, which is interesting. But just wanted to throw that out there as like. Salty well, wines. We were We're making. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's already a nominal level of potassium, right? In, yeah. In wine. But the. And there was that. There's actually a law against how much salts can be in wine mm -hmm. uh, in all the every single country everywhere. So it's not exactly considered a good thing because maybe we were salting things a little too much back in the day, or using salt water potentially to make things. Yeah. Uh, so I th there's a nominal uh, allowed amount in wine. I, I guess you could, you know, salt does counter bitter, just like sweet counters bitter. It certainly is like one of those taste things that kind of makes sense. And so does fat. So should you put a lump of butter in your mouth while you're drinking <laughs> black tea as well? I don't know. Like that works. But well, that's what's they cool put milk is, in tea. Yeah. It's what's cool is you can learn about taste and flavor and what counteracts what and that's part of the discovery with food pairing with wine is like, hey you know if you have a piece of fatty steak in your mouth that's very salty turns out it goes well with this brunello di montalcino <laughs> exactly so, so i think there's like it's fun that's fun i don't know what, why anyone's well, apologizing yeah or, apparently the british getting well, yeah the, i guess what i was trying to think party of like, had to apologize. like people are, yeah well yeah that's that's why it came <laughs> up it's like the biggest offense to a british tea sense the Boston Tea Party. <laughs> and it was like, uh, but I was just thinking about it because people are exploring these different elements in their beverages that they're already having. And it's it's so interesting because you, you're like salt and tea. Why is that better? Well, it's the same thing about pairing your wine. Like you said, like a big red wine with a salted steak. I, I think it's like super, super interesting back in the day or now. I'm also back in the day. I did read in that same book. Some people did make wine with salt water. Apparently that was like a thing for certain regions in France. That was what they were known for. And then second, people used to sweeten their wine with lead, like regularly. They would just like put like lead powder in there and it would make the wine sweeter. But then it also killed people. So like eventually they found that out. But <laughs> that's wild to think. Yeah, I think that the fear of a doctored wine is ever present. This move to purity, I call it, I call it purity because I don't 
like there's so many words for this. Um, it's like a natural wine. A na- oh, it's natural wine. Obviously, like a lot of people know this already, but wines, if some wines, if not filtered to a very small micron level, have histamines in them and pyramine and histamine is inflammatory. It's not an inflammatory. It's a flammatory <laughs> type of amine. And it'll totally give you a flushing, a headache, like all this stuff almost instantly when you taste wine. Purity versus natural. Like, I think we have this idea that if it just comes from the ground, it's going to be pure. And then we're going to drink this liquid of the gods and it's going to be great. But we don't know all the technology that's gone into place. I remember walking in a vineyard in Portugal many years ago and I walked in there to do that early instant influencer photo. It was like in 2013, like where, hey, can you take a picture of me in the vineyard? And they're like, no, no, there's ticks. There's <laughs> nature is metal, guys. It's going to it's going to effing kill you. The lead is bad. You got to watch out for arsenic in the soil. Like there's high levels of arsenic in old farming countries because we used to spray arsenic as a bug killer on everything. Like (laughs) nature is metal and we've been contributing to that as for a long time as well. So I, I'm like, I, you know, I look at like wines that are produced in mass and they, you know, the winemakers, they're extremely technical and sophisticated and they are going to cross flow filter everything to perfection so that no matter what every single product is consistent every bottle is consistent and you're getting a consistent result and i i have to say as i've grown you know i've gone through the whole purity phase and i've kind of come out the other end being like safety is important too and now i have a weird new definition of what safety is considering how much crazy you know you can get botulism from from a bad ferment you know it's a a, crazy world out there (laughs) you can lose a toe you can fall into the (laughs) fermenter because you got high on the carbon dioxide and drown (laughs) it's it's a crazy world out there and and i like i kind of i think wine is folly in that sense i think that's why the name is so apt um Mm -hmm. it's folly it's a folly to get into uh it was a folly to make these systems that we came up with when I started trying to analytically approach wine and all the different grape varieties, there was no like, hey, this is how they're supposed to taste. So I remember getting a panel of sommeliers together and arguing. I had a list of 100 grapes and we and I had all these flavors lined up and I'd show them to the group of sommeliers and they would argue and yell and we would decide what the five flavors of that wine were supposed to be. And that's how the book was created. It was a bunch of angry psalms. And me feeding them like oh, wow. water and tea and then some wine <laughs> to try to keep the conversation going. I'm taking notes, you know, and actually what's crazy is they were all mid-tier psalms at the time because that's all I knew. Um, but now <laughs> several of them are like master sommeliers. They're like leading, teaching and doing education now. But back in the day, we were just like, hey, there's no rules for this. I remember coming up with the color that in the book, there's this... Um, well, I'll pull it up. I think I have it here. Do, 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 do. Let's see. Where's the color thing? Well, I can't find anything in my own book. Come on. It's got to be. Wait, it's got to be here soon. Here it is. So this is a color thing. We have a poster with this, too. That's what I originally made it for. And I did it in Illustrator. So it's, there it's is. manufactured. So obsessively hue. Hey, you've got to. It's my favorite poster. Good choice. Um. 
I talked to some masters of wine and master sommeliers, and I talked to this sommelier in China who'd gone through the whole WSCT series as well to agree on the names of those colors and then what wines were associated to those colors. And there was a lot of, like, there's this word called onion skin that's used. And some people call it yellow. Other people call it pale grass or, you know, there's all these different nomenclature. And nobody agreed on a naming system for color and wine and where it was coming from and why it was happening. And so when I did that poster, I had to ask those questions because I'm trying to do something like almost official a system. I'm introducing a system. Of course, with all systems that you create, there's always going to be the prototypical examples that fit the mold. And then there'll be the ones that are outside of the mold. So eventually I'm going to get called out for not including things or not having space for things or not considering the exceptions to the rule. So (laughs) I'm doomed to fail as well. But I created the system to make it easier to learn quickly. And that was the entire goal. And I tried to get as much feedback as I could. But I remember when the first book came out, all this feedback came in from the Psalms. They were like, you're wrong about this. It's <laughs> terrible. You should die. Like, and I remember I was crying. And my husband was just like a boyfriend. Eventually became a husband. He was like, you know, you can always do another book. This is no big deal. It's just feedback. And why don't you just focus on what you have here that's really, really good if you're upset about it? And I looked at that. I I still look at that book and I'm just like, that girl who did that back then was a genius. I'm such a dum-dum now. How did I even do that? That just came out of my bowels, sort of, because I was under all this pressure to produce, you know, the book, the first one, at least. Um, You would never dare say something like that about stemless wine glasses now. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Out of pocket. You know, (laughs) I know we were so, so much more sardonic and snarky back then. I'm so afraid of snark now. It doesn't seem appropriate. I I feel like I need to be more like a camp counselor and be like, come on, kids or young adults. (laughs) Let's, (laughs) let's learn about wine together. (laughs) It's in a safe space for everyone. So you said uh, (laughs) something that I thought was interesting there about. I'm asking a person who got their W set in China or in Asia. I can't remember exactly where. But have you, I guess there's there's a push and pull with the wine folly part about you want to keep it as concise and narrow down to be easy to understand as possible. But have you found people in like Asia, for example, with the different flavor Rolodex being like, can you make one of these for us that we would be able to identify with more? Or like, how would oh, you Oh yeah, as that? soon as that came out, that came up almost immediately. I knew about mm-hmm. it long before it was even getting talked about. People were like, but if you look at some of the flavors, I use things like jackfruit and lychee, lychee and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So there's yeah. definitely room for it. But if you've never had a blueberry or a raspberry, yeah. oh my goodness. You know, and soy sauce, there's definitely notes of soy sauce in some of the things and that kind of a thing. So, yeah, in terms of a, you know, the coffee, I what I did was I went back and I looked at what the coffee community did because they have their own flavor profile and system. And that's what I was modeling it after. And what yeah. they did was they actually identified specific products that people can go buy. It was like Smucker's Grape Jam. It was, it was, it was Jiffy peanut butter. It was like all these things. And they had this and this was their like how you craft the flavor with of like products you can buy. Yeah, maybe Jiffy peanut butter is hard to get in China, but it's gettable. 
You could go get Jiffy peanut butter. And when we reference Jiffy as a flavor in coffee, it's applicable. Essentially, if we want to go to that next level, we're going to have to do something fucky like that to pull it off is to be like, all right, people, go get yourself a can of lychees. I know you can't have fresh lychees everywhere, but if you go get a can, everyone agrees this is lychee. <laughs> we can move on now. Yeah, the way Sorry, that, I call them lychees because I lived in Taiwan when I was a kid. and we... That's what we called them back then. Oh, that's super cool. And my my fiance is from Taiwan and we're, we're, I've become now a big lychee person because of her. But I think a can of lychees would look and feel like a can of eyeballs if you actually had a can. Yeah, <laughs> it, it does. You've had a can of lychees before, have you not? Well, I... I, not a can actually we've only had fresh i've only had fresh i like i like i said i've only we've been together five years and she's either prepared like a bowl of lychees like i've never had it's gone out and gotten a can of lychee no yeah so when i was little i lived in taiwan this was i was like four um and m- mom used to go to the market and get lychees it was awesome um and i would gobble most of them down and she would hide half of them so my sister could at least have some because i'm i was addicted to them so we got back to the U.S. and the only lychees you could buy were canned lychees. So we would go get them and I would still try it. And they'd be like in syrup and they were like a can of eyeballs. Like, absolutely. But when fresh lychees, they started growing lychees in Mexico. It was like, I can almost remember the year I started seeing them show up in the market. It was like 2002 or 2003. I remember being at a Whole Foods for the first time and being like, oh my God, baked lychees. I was losing my mind. So yeah, flavors in wine, go taste fruit. If you don't know what a fruit tastes you are like, you are a you have a a huge handicap <laughs> if you're trying to get into wine. Yep. And the and the wine world's like, you know, blueberry, but if you heated it to 145 degrees and then spread it. So you have to try these fruits in all different kinds of ways to boil this and then uh, you know, stewed fruit. What is stewed fruit, people? <laughs> But actually, I think that the average person understands that. They may not be able to say stewed fruit, but oh, have you ever made a pie filling or, you know, something like that? Yeah, I think someone just needs to connect dots and more people be like, oh, yeah, definitely. It makes sense. Um, You formalized a lot of this, though, now. And I want to talk about the, you know, Folly, the wine school. So you have both a wine 101, a 201 for basic single step up. Um, am I missing something out of that sort of lineup and how did that come about and what's that looking like today? Yeah, we have about 12 courses now online, a 101 series, including wine 101, Mm -hmm. which is wine basics and a 201 series, which we have Italian wine, French wine and wine 201, which is a generalized 201 series. And essentially what happened is after creating this tasting system, after creating the grape system, after doing the colors of wine system, after developing this regional system like map plus here are the regions here are the major wines you taste from the region and learning about that i was like all right (laughs) we've got enough resources everyone is using my the book to pass ws at wset level two i can't tell you how many emails comments dms not like helps me pass that so then I remember paying for a social media person on my team to go through WSCT level because I wanted them to be wine confident so that they could answer questions and link them their proper stuff online. Hey, will you take this WSCT level two? And I remember going through the materials and being like, this is garbage. I hate this. Why is this the number one 
Like, why are we <laughs> learning about wine this way? It's like memorization, all memorization, all the time. And it it seems like an antiquated way of learning. So I so it was 201. I didn't try to do this alone because I technically I'm not a master of wine. I'm not a master sommelier. As far as as far as roles are concerned, I am a nobody. Um, so we hired a master of wine who's not only a master of wine, she's like a top educator. She's worked at Cantor and she's helped build the programming for WSET. And I was like, hey, I want to just destroy the entire education system and start over from the ground up with all these amazing resources that we have. And she, what do you mean destroy it? It's perfectly good. This is great. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have my degree. She's a master of wine, right? And so she's worked through all of this stuff. And so we had actually some challenges getting on the same page together. But she's so, school's me, man. She is so smart about wine. She studied winemaking. She's got a chemistry degree. And she's also a master of wine. And and wow, is like the way she understands wine. I started learning how I wanted, how I want people to get at least the beginner version of the way she sees the world. So we started engineering the courses to how she looks at a hill and be like, I think these grapes could grow here based on the conditions of this hill. I want people to look at the world and see it as, hey, this is a potential wine growing zone. (laughs) I want them to think about it like that. Oh, what grapes do you have growing here? Oh, you have Zinfandel? Interesting. What does that tell me about this region? So I want people to stop thinking about memorization, you know, I'm going to pick on Brunello di Montalcino again. Brunello di Montalcino must have five years of aging before release and at least, who knows, two years in bottle. Like, how many months in oak? Like, why are we focusing on that? We should just know that if it's this way that it probably has some oak aging involved, it's probably extended aging. These flavors come from age and these come from oak and these are coming from the fermentation aromas and these are coming from the primary aromas from the grape. If we can get people thinking, learning how to, to break, it's almost like learning how to taste food and pick out the ingredients in the food. It's the same process. So we started at the 101, we refractored 101 and then, which is, it was, it was actually used, I used to give it away for free. If you would have followed us years ago and you would have downloaded it for free. Um, we refactored the entire thing though and built it at, into actually a, a quiz that you can pass and get a certification for. So that costs money. And then the 201 is the same thing, but it's essentially a little bit harder than WSCT level two. That's a little bit more, I think, I don't know if it's harder, but it's more high level than WSCT level two. It'll put you in a range when you walk into a wine store. You might not know that region, but you can learn how to look at that region objectively to figure out how the wine tastes. And that's the goal. Like if you walk into a wine store and you look at a bottle of wine that you can look at the bottle and be like, hey, if I can figure out what that region is, I can figure out how what that wine is and how it tastes. And that was the goal with the courses. And so we're so excited about them. We're going to be launching more courses in coming years and an entire online program where you can track your progress and stack your learning over time. Yeah, I I love that approach because I'm kind of right there with you with the view set that you know, I, I'm not a very good traditional student. I'm very bad at just reading something, memorizing a chart, and then regurgitating it, uh, which is exactly the way that they want you to learn. But the idea of 
oh, walk to the bottom of that hill and feel how cold it is and then walk to the top and feel how it gets warmer and then apply that to, you know, anywhere you go. Uh, that's for me, at least much more tangible and experiential and easy to understand. Um, and I, th I think actually I would, I would guess that just because I feel like you go through school, you know, you're, when you're younger, you go through school and then it's the same stuff in college. Then people get a professional degree. It's always like memorize, read, memorize, regurgitate. We pull people out of that. And wine, wine learning has the ability to pull you out of that food too, because if you figure out that when you boil something, it softens. Oh, shoot. Now I soften anything I want to soften when I'm in the kitchen. Uh, yeah. So that that's kind of, I, I really like that idea of extrapolating out those ideas. Yeah. It's applied learning, right? Like that's what exactly. she said. I remember her making the cohort quiz because we have a, it's a, I think at 400 or 500 questions in it, but you only answer a hundred to pass wine 201. So it's like, you might not get the same question. So you don't know. Anyway, the I just remember her being like, we need to have this percentage of applied learning, where it's something you didn't learn back there. You have to apply what you learned and make a yeah. guess on what the right answer is. And so that was a, a very essential part. I think to me, that's the essential. That's when I know you know something, mm -hmm. is if you can apply the learning. And so when we built the quiz and when we built the entire course, it was all about that. And, th and as soon as like, as soon as she said applied learning and we talked back and forth about what that meant to each of us, we were like, aha, this is the Got answer. Yeah. Um, she's yeah. amazing. Her name's Christine Marsilio. She's our head wine educator. So she runs all the programming for the courses and that kind of thing. And there's video elements, there's chapter quizzes. So you can sort of test your knowledge along the way to make sure that you're retaining all the information. Nice. And they're, they're bite-sized chunks because what I, I get the burnout thing where I go so much time and it's hard and I need to go take a break. So you can do a, a applied learning, take a quiz, take a break, come back tomorrow. Like you could take it at your own pace. Or if you're like a nice. crammer, you can cram it all into one night if you have enough coffee, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. like that. The, uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense that like the W set stuff is timed. Like, why does, why do you have to do it fast? <laughs> you, you know, regurgitate this information quickly. Um, yeah. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, with quizzes and, and certifications, it comes, the question of cheating comes, comes to mind. You oh, yeah. look up the answer yeah. and that kind of a thing. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's important to keep the quality of the student who gets the certification in the program qualified because that gives your certification um, quality too. If you're, if somebody says I'm certified and they go get a job, but they actually don't know what they're talking about, they cheated to get there or whatever. Sure, sure. Cheating is a, is like an issue, but you know, we're starting to, we're going down that path and we're developing this programming and I'm, I'm very excited about it because, you know, I, I'm not against WSCT, actually. I'm very much on board with anyone who's trying to educate. So if anything, if this helps people pass those quizzes, those tests better, and is maybe used as more of like a side learning while they're taking these courses to become more confident and to really actually understand, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm happy to be there in the world of education. Um, so it's not, I don't really think of it as a versus thing, although... I did have opinions when it came down to looking at the course 
platform, their, their coursework yeah. and being like, I think we can do this differently. I think, I think we're ready for something different. And new. Have you had folks in hospitality yeah. or in the industry come to you and say, hey, you know, we really respect, you know, this new kind of style of education that you're doing in these certifications. And we're actually actively hiring people because they have that credentialing. Has it gotten to that level yet where you're seeing it actually accepted widely? Right now, we're working on partnerships with restaurants to mm-hmm. have them yes. use the course materials for their staff. Because mm-hmm. if you can imagine restaurant staff, you've got, you're lucky if you can have someone for two years, right? You know, so there's a lot of turnover that happened. So getting somebody up to speed is really important. And so what we want to do is partner with these restaurants and continue to get feedback on what's working and what doesn't work so that we can continue to improve. I, I mean, I feel very good about what we've put together so far, but maybe application-wise, maybe how people take it could be improved upon or what, what how things are organized could be improved upon and that kind of a thing. So I'm like very excited. I was talking to a restaurant. I'm in um, California right now. And I was talking to a restaurant in Healdsburg and they're like, yeah, we've got 80 staffers and we're constantly like wine is a huge part of our program. And I don't know, maybe, maybe five people know it pretty well here, you know, so they they have a big, hard job of staff training. And so I want to be help helpful to them. And so if it can work for them, then I can get it, then it's going to work for everyone. Yeah, I would, um, as I've been listening here. One, it would be awesome to have, I, I can't remember what her name was, but the lady who's helping you, your head of education on, because I'd, I'd love to pick her brain on the podcast as well. But yeah. I was thinking about it more from just enjoying wine. My fiance does not want to hear me talk about, yeah, the barrel aging regimen. And she actually hates being in the cellar because um, I try to tell her about all these facts. But you, you take her to a vineyard and you do explain this is why, you know, things are there. That big fan thing is because of frost. And you start explaining that or other elements. And I found she's starting to enjoy wine more because she knows what went into making it. And I think that applied knowledge. Like when you learn it earlier, it actually helps you enjoy it. Whereas I just finished the diploma and they don't start telling you some of these things. You don't even look at viticulture or winemaking tidbits in detail until the diploma. And so how are you explaining wine or understanding it if you're not knowing what the process was to go into it? I think it really makes you enjoy it. Yeah. That that's that's interesting. Diploma's really hard. Congratulations. That's oh, thank you. that's definitely a hard hard test to to pass. I never passed it, but I quit. Uh <laughs> I I you know, I I don't know. I I was never I don't know. I just didn't fit. I didn't fit the program. I was trying to go for my master sommelier actually and that's what I kind of burned out um when I was when I was taking it because it was so rigid. Mm-hmm. I had to taste a certain way and they only wanted to hear certain things come out of your mouth. It's funny because it's all changed. They just dropped the New World, Old World monikers, which mm. is cr- which is crazy because I've hated that for years. So they dropped it. I'm just like, should I help? Have I- <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of like, okay, we're moving in the right direction. Let's keep going. This is great. It's happening. Um, so yeah, I couldn't be more pleased with how much it's changed and how much more welcoming it is. But then it also could be because maybe we're more desperate for new 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 blood to come in, for new talent to to be within the industry, or new people to be wine drinkers in general. Yeah, yeah. I also think I mean, it's necessary because I think there's like a realization of like I feel like the the people who talked about wine the most 
where the people who are just talking about like the very top end of wine and they're just talking to these other rich, typically older folks who could afford those wines. And then people were just drinking, you know, Vente Table or whatever they wanted to call it there. And it's like the table wines that people were drinking every day. There wasn't conversation around when those are the wines that truly everyone was enjoying. So I think there's now more interest in conversation, at least especially here in Los Angeles. And I, I always tell Brady, it's maybe because of the natural wine movement. But now people are like, if you say you have a wine from Slovenia, you no longer get the response of, like, oh, that's weird. I like Napa Chardonnay or Cabernet. Like they want to know like, what grape is it? Or it's actually cool to them now to tell the story. So I think maybe it's people's interest in stories, but I, I think we've come a long way in that front as well. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it is an interest in stories. We're looking for new stories to be told, not the same old stories. I think you bring up an interesting point about Vendetabla, actually, uh, you know, with how organizing and making sense of the wine world required that the wine world not be whatever it wants to be. It requires that it has a classification system. It requires that it's organized and sorted and that there are these rules and that natural wine isn't the thing. It requires all these things to be true. White wine looks like white wine looks like white wine. And that's very much on the table as to maybe not be true hey, white wine could be orange. It actually could kind of be red if, you, if you're using Pinot Gris, right? So it's it's funny because all the work that I've that we've done to organize and make sense of the wine world can easily be thrown out now because we have Vendetabla and it's using a grape from that's not allowed in that region, <laughs> but it's from that region, you know? So And it tastes whatever it tastes like. So you can't really now suddenly this dive the increasing diversity makes complexity and the complexity of learning so, so much harder. So to at least have the basics taken care of and in the background, yeah, you're a diplomist, you know all of the things. There's probably so much that you know that you forget that you didn't know, you know? So mm-hmm. at least we have the basics covered and that you can be pretty good, above average, pretty good about at least all that stuff. That's what I really want is for people to be confident enough to be pretty good about all that stuff so that when the weird natural orange wine made with Trousseau Gris that comes along is, oh, this is weird. This is different. Tell me the story. I'm like, it's not just part of my wine education. It's part of my wine education. Plus, it's like the bump up from all the other stuff that's that's standard. So I I don't know. Gosh, but but I think like I, your things are even helping that because if you have a, a general understanding of like a red wine's made by putting skins in juice, I get an orange wine. They explain they're like, it's, you know, the easiest way to do it's like white wine made like a red wine. And you're like, oh, cool. Those both make sense to me. Now I can understand or appreciate this. Or these wines came from a colder region. Is this going to have acid? Maybe. But you'll learn those basics and you can apply those across and appreciate the stories more, maybe. Yeah, so that's cool. yeah, that's that would be cool. I agree. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I'm i like at the weird point in my life where I don't know. Eventually, at some point, everything in my that, that I've created will be thrown out for whatever else new or whatever. And so I'm just like, well, I did what I could. Like, I keep doing it and we're going to see where it goes. But I'm I, I used to be so confident. I used to be so sure of myself. This is how we got to do it. Like, this, what you're doing is garbage. It sucks. We're going to do it this way and it's so much better. And now I do, I feel like the whole world is gay. And I was so black and white back then. And now I'm just like, I'm like turning into a gray monk. 
slowly and like peering into the background. If, if, if they like, want to learn it this way, they can, guys... but they also don't have to. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's how it feels. And and I was I had I had so much confidence in myself when I didn't know anything. And I have less. The more I know, the more I know I don't. Like I, the more uncertain I become, which is weird. It's a weird place to 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 operate in. You're like, I guess mm-hmm. I'll do that. It seems like the right. I feel like the old self comes out. And it's, yes, and then the the new self is yeah, but throw it all away we could just you know it doesn't really matter but then i do see people who don't know anything about wine or know very little and they're astonished and they're confused or they're saying something that's very very inaccurate and i go okay at least we can deal with that like wine is bad for you i don't know we don't actually have a lot is it let's look at the scientific reports on that there's a lot of data out there and some of the most recent data makes wine look the best out of all the alcoholic beverages. And so I've got my fingers crossed that we're going to survive the next whatever prohibition, whatever that looks like. <laughs> yeah. I want to I ask you about two weird wine utensils or things. And then we want to hear what kind of wine you're actually drinking on Tuesday kind of thing. But the first weird wine thing is those tannin reducer drops. Have you seen those? I'm sure you've seen them. Have you ever used them? Do you know these? I haven't used them. I've seen them. I'm horrified. Yeah, what, what what does that mean? Can you explain? Because I I literally saw I saw it at a, a wine not a wine shop. It was like a market. Gosh, never shop at a place that a wine shop that would sell that. But I truly did not understand what it did or what it was trying to accomplish or like where that came from. I guess. But yeah, how would you um, polymerize tannins? Well, it's like a okay, headache reducer like a... or something is what they thought. Really. That Wait, was what it was for. The tannins, tannins called headaches is the the thing, right? Well, that's totally inaccurate. Yeah, <laughs> tannins are not causing the headaches. It's the tyramine, if anything, or it's the fact that you haven't drunk enough water and you're just dehydrated and you keep. Yeah, or it's sixteen and a half percent cab. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or whatever it it is. Yeah, you haven't. Yeah, you probably drank too much. Is the number one reason you have a hangover and a headache. And if you get a headache immediately, it's probably from the histamines. So, huh, I don't know. But if you think about tannin as, we should ask Christine Marsilio. She might have an answer to this, but there are certain things you can do. With, if tannins become more smooth with when they become long chain polymers, right? So if there's some way to do that instantly with some kind of chemistry, that could be what's in there. Then he hmm. just mentioned salt and sugar, and I mentioned sugar. So it could just be like a glycerol that would do it too. Yeah. mix. It could just be like glycerol. They might just be repackaging glycerol and something else, salt, potassium, yeah. or something like that, and just pop it in your wine. Now you're modifying your wine. Who yeah, knows that? You know what that is? It's snake oil. Don't buy it. <laughs> that's what I <laughs> no, think. It's, yeah, it's either sugar and salt that's disguising it, or even if it was mm. like you're essentially finding your own your own red wine in a weird way. So it's just yeah. I don't know. Is it? Is it like that are just grabbing on and dropping it out? <laughs> yeah. Do you are you supposed to shake it and then let it settle? What like how do you, you prep pour, your wine? You pull like, it out, pour it out of your purse and you drip it in and you tuck it back into your purse and you go about your wine. <laughs> it could even be full of vitamins too that are like good that oh. you um, when you get dehydrated that you need in your system. Like a lot of those post hangover things really really work and it's because they're just loaded and, with yeah. like. All the stuff that you've just depleted your body with from, you know, after a night of drinking. 
So I have no idea what it is specifically that may name any we, we number should, of one of those things. We should start a fund that just buys all of the in 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 store product of that stuff and then yeah, and it. then take it to <laughs> someone with one of those little guns that zap, and you can see what chemicals <laughs> are in it. There's like a oh, there you go. Uh, yeah, there's a there's an actual thing that you that that does this. I was talking to the guy, the chemistry dude at UC Davis, and there's an actual little X ray little thing that you can poke it point at things and it'll tell you kind of essentially what's in what's in the material so i would maybe i don't know i don't know how much what, that costs probably costs a lot to get it done at uc davis what about a black have you ever had wine out of a black uh glassware so you can't tell oh yeah whether the, or not the wine is I white did, or red i did do a, it was great it was led by a he blindfolded everyone as sommelier blindfolds everyone and then we're tasting wines and you're just kind of feeling around for the wine and you get it and you taste it and then you write your notes and people tell what, what they thought it was and he had selected these very cleverly selected wines and the reveal happens and okay everyone take off your blindfolds and our sommelier was blind and we during that wow. time some people had called red wine for the white wine some people called you know things for the rosé we were all over the board I thought I'd nailed it, which I did, but I had had ex- blind tasting experience. So I was like very confident that I wasn't going to, that I wasn't going to flub it. But a lot of people were confused and, and the black glass totally, you know, it throws people off. Um, but what was so amazing was this, this gentleman was a blind sommelier for his name. And we didn't know that until he, we took off our blindfolds. And it, it like unlocked all these things for everyone, including my, myself included, you know, of how much of our world, like all the, I call out red fruit flavors and red wines all the time, even though it's actually peaches or tea or well, like whatever it is. Like I, I, and so now I smell wine a lot differently than I ever did. And I try to smell what I'm actually smelling. I often close my eyes when I do this because I'm actually looking for the flavor that's actually there versus the one that my brain is telling me is there. And I remember doing it for the first time with a Blanc de Noir and being like, this smells like red currant. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> oh my God. It was like the, it was like the first time, like, cause it happened earlier in my career that I had this experience. I was still a pretty good taster. Even back then I was doing like tasting competitions and doing really well in them. But, um, it was, it was like one of those aha moments for me. It was like, to like, this is fooling you. Your eyes are fooling you. Your nose, you don't know how to use as well as this guy did. Like that guy knows how to use his nose. And his tasting notes to this day have been some of the best tasting notes I think I've ever read because he's using his nose. Don't let your eyes fool you. So there's a lesson there, I'm sure, so for someone. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I would be fooled. I have much less experience tasting than either of you two do, but I would... It just like blew my mind. I was like, I would definitely never say that a white wine was a red wine or vice versa, but apparently it's, uh, I have to try You're it. Surprised. <laughs> yeah. Some of them have yeah. hand and it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. You've been super generous with your time. We want to take you for any longer, but got to cover a ton of stuff. And I hope our listeners make it to your site to either buy some graphics, some posters, or get in and uh, do some deep dive yeah, education. I think. Yeah. The, I would say the courses are remarkable. Uh, we've got mm-hmm. we've got over twenty thousand students taking those courses now, so it's not like a That's little awful. thing. It's a big thing, and it's it's a great way to. It's an I'm 
very invested in um, raising the base, getting us up there to enjoy wine so it's, it becomes more of a grocery that we can all share the language together of what wine is. Awesome. Well, I think you're doing a great job. I know you helped me and a bunch of my other friends get into wine or continue learning. So thank you so much for all you've done so far. Yeah, congratulations. You two both. All right. That was our interview with Madeline Puggett. I hope everybody goes and checks out some of her wine courses. They sounded really interesting to me and approachable, especially for somebody like maybe like my fiance who hears me talk about wine stuff all the time, but doesn't really want to go through W set. Um, I think these are <laughs> really approachable and applicable and sound actually really entertaining. I haven't looked into them anymore, but of courses. So I hope everybody checks those out as well as the classic content, the books, the website. Um, definitely go check out everything Wine Folly has to offer. And then as for us, we'll be back with another episode next week. Cheers. <laughs>